0: In March of 2014, college sophomore Danny Foley wanted to join the University of Virginia men's basketball team, even if it meant he had to fake his way onto the court. You see, Virginia was playing in the ACC championship game against college basketball powerhouse Duke University, led by the legendary Coach K. And Danny, who was a fan of Virginia, noticed that all of Virginia's assistant coaches wore the same thing, dark suit, light-colored shirt, and an orange tie. And so, before the game, Danny decided to go to Walmart and buy himself some knockoffs, he found everything he needed. He found a suit jacket, suit pants, then he got shoes, socks, a white shirt, and yes, even the orange tie. And so, Danny bought some nosebleed tickets to get himself into the game, and he waited for the right opportunity. And then, during a TV timeout, Danny made his move. He confidently marched right past an usher behind the cheerleaders and onto the court and joined the team's huddle there on the court. And nobody caught on. <laughs> By all appearances, Danny was a part of the team. His ruse had worked. Well, uh, Virginia went on to secure a historic championship win against Duke University, and Danny joined the rest of his teammates in the handshake line after the game. We have a picture here of him. You see his get up there? You see him in the huddle? You can even see him there shaking hands with Coach K after the game. This really happened. Uh, He even took a selfie there with the trophy. You can see it. (laughs) Eventually, somebody finally figured out that Danny did not belong, and so he scampered off into the stands and disappeared, and nobody was the wiser. Pretty incredible, right? He looked the part of a real assistant coach, so nobody stopped him when he snuck onto the team. Nobody saw the truth. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2 today. Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is going to say to the church in Thyatira today and the church in Plainfield that sin has snuck into the church, that lies are masquerading as the truth, that the church is tolerating an imposter in their midst, the imposter of Satan's deception. But Jesus sees and says the truth. Here's the first truth that Jesus sees and says. He sees and says the condition of the church. Uh, Look at what he says about the condition of the church. Verses 18 and 19. He says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. So Jesus says, he has eyes like blazing fire. He sees everything, he knows everything, he searches every heart, he knows and examines every thought. Jesus sees and says the truth. Truth is, Thyatira was not a very important city. (laughs) They were actually the smallest of the seven cities that got letters in Revelation there. And yet Thyatira, this unimportant city, actually gets the longest of the seven letters. Jesus sees and says the truth, and the truth is this church in Thyatira has actually grown spiritually. Jesus points out four areas in which they're doing well. He says first, the church in Thyatira is good at love. And when I look at Plainfield Christian Church, I see a church that's good at love. You all have loved our little family so well in our first few months here. We feel like we're just part of the clan. We love it. I see you guys loving all kinds of other people. I see you building relationships with kids over there in the treehouse. I see you leading your own families. I see you visiting each other when you're in need. I see you coming here and loving and worshiping God with these loving, adoring hearts. You guys are a loving, sincere church. Well done. Jesus commends the church in Thyatira for their faith. And when I look at Plainfield Christian Church, I see a church of faith. I mean, you all are living lives oriented around your desire to love and to serve God well. You not only believe the truths of the faith that we've been singing about all morning, but those truths are the very core of who you are. You've seen the ups and downs come and go in a world around you, and yet your faith in Jesus Christ is unswerving. You are a church of faith. Well done, Jesus commends the church in Thyatira for their service. And when I look at Plainfield Christian Church, I see a church of service. It thrills me to see those of you who help pass out bulletins and fill communion trays and teach little kids and go on trips and donate your time and your energy to help those around you or to serve here at the church. Many of you are faithfully pouring yourselves out in selfless lives of servanthood. You are a serving church. Well done. Well done. Jesus commends the church at Thyatira for their perseverance. And when I look at Plainfield Christian Church, I see a church of perseverance. Some of you all are going through some really difficult times right now. And all of you have had those times at some point. And yet, even in hardship, you've not given up. Instead of pulling away from God, you've deepened your faith and your trust. You have loved Christ for decades and you've held on even in the hard times and you're still here. You are a persevering church. Well done. And yet, that's not all Jesus sees when he looks at the church in Thyatira or the church in Plainfield. He also sees and says the condemnation of the church. Look at verses 20 and 21. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling So the problem in the church is the teaching and toleration of Jezebel. You may remember Jezebel from Israel in the Old Testament. She was uh, the pagan wife of the wimpy king Ahab. Yeah, it, it it was Jezebel who helped lead Israel away from God and into the worship of the idol Baal. And so in Thyatira, Jesus says there's somebody who's having a Jezebel-like influence on the church, leading them away from God and into immorality. And this sin that Jezebel is teaching likely has to do something with the, the trade guilds there in Thyatira. You see, each industry would have a guild, kind of like a workers' union, that helped fuel the economy, a woodworkers' guild, potters' guild, cloth dyers' guild, leather workers' guild, that kind of thing. And these guilds would often hold common communal meals. These meals could be held at a temple. They would begin and end with a sacrifice to the gods, and then you would eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And it wasn't uncommon for these meals to quickly devolve into drunken orgies. Not a very Christian setting. And yet, to not be a part of a trade guild was to basically commit economic suicide. So Jezebel here is pushing these Christians to give in, to engage, to participate. And how is she doing it? False teaching. Doctrinal misdirection. Lies. She might have said something like, oh, well, you have to know about sin to truly experience grace, right? Oh, go for it. God will forgive you. After all, it's just your body. It's, you know, not like it's your soul. Idols are nothing after all, right? So what's the big deal? And the narrative that the world around us may try to sell you may sound appealing and enticing and even true. And you will be tempted by the lies, too. You'll be tempted to cut a few corners at work, to fit in with that social group by being pressured to do what they do, to try to preserve a relationship that you cherish by sacrificing your integrity, giving in to a little gray area, a little white lie, a one-time giving in. It may seem necessary. It may actually seem like it's the only thing you know how to do to survive. Maybe Jezebel is whispering to you today, Oh, come on, you have to pay your bills. After all, we're under grace, not law, right? If you don't laugh, they'll think you're a prude. If you, I mean, go get a divorce, absolutely. Doesn't, Doesn't God want you to be happy after all? If you don't go to bed with him, you might lose him. And after all, he could be the one. Lies. But Jesus sees and says the truth. So are you listening to the teaching of Jezebel or the teaching of Jesus? Because Jesus says that the church is not only at fault for the teaching of Jezebel, but also for the toleration of Jezebel. This church was full of love and faith and service and perseverance, and yet no amount of that can make up for the tolerance of evil in the body of Christ. The world around us tells us to be tolerant, to tolerate, to each his own. There is no absolute truth. Sex is a personal thing. Be tolerant. The world says there is no absolute standard, no absolute truth. In other words, everyone is right unless you claim to be right and then you're wrong. <laughs> and Jezebel wants to whisper those lies in here too. But remember, we follow Jesus who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. So we will not be tolerant of those who are destroying themselves with sin We will not be tolerant of the abuse of innocence of others. We will not be tolerant of people who claim to be following Jesus Christ and yet are still living according to the sexual ethic of Satan. We will not be tolerant of that because we love them. If I saw you about to drive your car off a cliff or build your new house on a floodplain, or eat a poisonous berry, I would not be tolerant of that. I would stop you because I love you. And because we love God, and because we love our brothers and sisters, there is no excuse for tolerating any kind of sin, and specifically here sexual sin, in the church. So let's pause for a second while we're talking about tolerance. Let's clarify what we are saying and what we are not saying. First of all, we are not saying that tolerance is always bad. No. Tolerance can be a virtue. We tolerate differences in each other that may honestly annoy us but aren't necessarily sinful because we value loving one another and unity in the bride. We want unity. So we don't tolerate on our principles, on the truth, but we do tolerate people. I mean, Jesus was tolerant. Just look at Jesus. Jesus tolerated. He loved the immoral woman at the well. Jesus tolerated. He loved even Martha when she was too busy to sit and listen to him. Jesus tolerated, he loved those messy children that everyone else looked on with scorn. Jesus tolerated, he loved his 12 followers at their last meal together, even as they argued about which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus has tolerated, he's loved even me in my foolishness and my pride and my rebellion. Jesus is so patient with us, so incredibly tolerant of us. As Steve mentioned earlier, our mission as a church is to love all people to new life in Christ. And that requires some patience, some tolerance. After all, they will know we are Christians by our what? By our love. We are called to love people so much that we'll do anything short of sin to get them to fall in love with Jesus Christ. And that requires patience. Some tolerance. Look, this is actually how Paul says we are to tolerate each other. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. That word disheartened there could actually literally mean small-souled. So are you willing to be patient and tolerant and encouraging of the small-souled people that you encounter? Jesus was tolerant of people, but he was not tolerant of sin. Uh, Jesus was intolerant. He condemned leaders of the people who were arrogant in their opinions and doctrines. He was intolerant. He condemned a rich man who was more concerned with his wealth than caring for the poor, He was intolerant. He condemned religious leaders who focused on judging sinners rather than loving them back into a right relationship with God. Jesus was intolerant. He condemned the church folks who focused on keeping the letter of the law while they ignored mercy and grace and justice. Jesus was tolerant of people, but he was intolerant of sin. So we're not saying that tolerance is always bad. We're also not saying... Wow, look at all the sexual sin out there. No. Actually, Jesus isn't writing these letters to the world. He's writing them to the church. We are called to look in, to look at our own lives, and to be ruthlessly intolerant with our own sin. 1 Corinthians 5, 12-13 says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, but, he says, expel the wicked person From among you. That's how seriously Jesus takes the purity of his church. We're also not saying that if you sin sexually, you're utterly done for. No, there's grace for me. There's grace for you. But grace comes with repentance. We are called to live an open life of constantly running away from sin and towards Christ's likeness And Jesus sees and says the truth. And truth is, some of you in this room are tolerating sexual sin, and it is rotting you from the inside out. The statistics are pretty clear on how many people in this room are having affairs, and how many people in this room are regularly viewing pornography. And Jezebel may be whispering to you right now, telling you that it's fine, it's somebody else's problem. But Jesus sees and says the truth. He knows your thoughts. He knows everything you've seen, everything you've done, everything you think you're hiding. Jesus sees and says the truth, and the truth is, it's time to be intolerant with your own sin. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16 says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So are you watching your life closely? Ephesians 5.3 says. But among you there must not even be a hint. Of sexual immorality. Or of any kind of impurity. Or of greed. Because these are improper. For God's holy people. Now churches. Christians. I hope you hate. Rape. I hope you hate sex slavery, and I hope you hate abusive relationships and sexual harassment. But I hope that you will also be consistent in your hatred of those things by also hating the ideology that feeds those things. I hope that you will hate shows and movies that promote sex and nudity, and I hope you will refuse to allow them into your home. I hope that you will hate pornography and lustful thoughts that objectify a human being into an object of your own pleasure. I hope that you will hate immodest dressing and the sexualizing of your body as an object of lust. I hope that you will be so intolerant of sin and the whispers of Jezebel in your life that you will filter your computer, that you will never have unmonitored time on the internet, that your spouse will always know where you are, that you will never have unaccountable interactions or even emotional unfaithfulness with a member of the opposite sex. So don't hesitate when you catch even a whiff of temptation. My dad always said to me growing up, if you hesitate, you'll contemplate. And if you contemplate, you'll negotiate. If you negotiate, you'll participate. And if you participate, you'll devastate. So don't hesitate. And maybe you're thinking right now that this doesn't apply to you. Maybe sexual sin is not your struggle. Great. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Keep it up. Maybe you've been a faithful Christian for decades and you feel like you've got the habitual sin pretty well whipped in your life. Wonderful, keep it up. But be careful not to exclude yourself from this text. You're not above this. None of us are ever immune to the whispers of Jezebel and the moment you let your guard down is the moment the devil gets a foothold in your life. My wife has a great line. She always says, sin will always take you further than you ever thought you'd go. You know, King David didn't set out to be an adulterer and a murderer, but he decided one spring not to go out to war like kings did and just stay home and take it easy, and lo, he saw Bathsheba. He let his guard down. Solomon didn't set out to go from the wisest man in all the world to a pagan idolater, and yet he let his guard down, and one foreign woman after another came into his life. Peter didn't set out to deny Jesus, but he let his guard down, and he was pressured By the people around him, Judas Iscariot did not set out to deny and betray the Christ. And yet he let one little moment of greed take over his heart. Sin will always take you further than you ever thought you'd go. So don't let your guard down. You might be tolerating sin or a whiff of temptation in your life right now. So examine yourself and be intolerant of every hint of sin. Jesus sees and says the truth. He sees and says the condition of the church, the condemnation of the church, and now he gives us the correction for the church. Verses 22 through 25. Jesus said, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. So, this is what happens to those who listen to the teaching of Jezebel and tolerate sin in their lives. Sin may seem fun and enticing right now in the moment. But sin always over-promises and under-delivers every single time. Sin has terrifying results. Jesus is gonna judge sin. He's not gonna look at your rebellion against him and just wink and say, ah, it's no big deal, come on in. No. Sin has to be punished. But notice here that this judgment, this suffering is not just punishment for sin because the judgment of God is always aimed... At repentance, restoration, at redemption, God is a God who desperately wants sinners to come back to him. That's why even his judgment is an act of his love. And this offer of repentance that he's giving even extends to Jezebel herself. So this is the first part of Jesus' correction for the church. He says, hey, repent of the evil. Repent. I want you to come back. And the first step of repentance is recognizing your sin. We tend to do these mental gymnastics in our head. Uh, We rationalize and we make excuses and we trick ourselves into hiding or denying our own sinfulness. We say, oh, it was just a mistake. It's not that big of a deal. But we need to recognize that it was not a mistake. It was a willful action on your part to rebel against God. It was sin. People like to talk about their lives as full of mistakes. Oh, I knew that relationship was inappropriate and I shouldn't have been in it. But it was just a mistake. We like that word because if it's just a mistake, then I'm not really guilty of anything. If my son grows up and he's carrying his plate to the sink and he accidentally trips and he drops it on the floor and it breaks, I'm not going to punish him. That was a mistake. But if he's carrying his plate to the sink and he gets mad and he throws it on the floor and it breaks, that's sin. That deserves punishment. We are not mistakers. We are sinners. Oh, sure, every once in a while we might make an innocent mistake, but I pretty much guarantee you that if you look a little deeper, you'll find sin in there. Because be honest with yourself. You kind of like to do things your own way, don't you? Yeah. I, Luke Proctor, have been and am, by my own choosing, a sinner, not a mistaker. And here's the difference. If I'm just a mistaker, then all I have to do is try harder. Just be better. Stop making mistakes. But if I'm a sinner, then I deserve punishment. If I'm a sinner, then the only solution to my problem is that I die. First John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So the first step of being reconciled to God is repentance. Recognize your own sinfulness. We used the examples earlier of David and Solomon and Peter, right? Well, David repented. He recognized his sin and he was restored into right relationship with God and he's called now a man after God's own heart. And Solomon spent his life wandering away from the truth of God. But we have evidence in the book of Ecclesiastes that at the end of his life, Solomon came back to God. And Peter denied Jesus Christ himself and yet repented and went on to help found the church. It's never too late to receive your redemption through repentance. After all, Jesus sees and says the truth about you, so you might as well fess up anyway. You're not hiding it. (laughs) Repent of the evil But don't just repent of the evil, also hold on to the good. That's the second step. He says you can't just empty yourself of bad things. You have to fill yourself with good things. In the late 1800s, the Chicago River killed thousands of people. In those days, the Chicago River was just this shallow, nasty, sluggish sewer for the whole city. It was filled with animal and human waste that flowed out from the city into Lake Michigan, into the city's drinking water supply. And so every year, for 10 years, 10,000 people died as a result of the diseases that rocked the city because of this horrible water. In the year 1885 alone, nearly 100,000 people died from illnesses due to this terrible water. So finally, some engineers decided to take action. They dug a canal for 28 miles. They moved more earth and rock than were moved in the entire construction of the Panama Canal, and they installed locks and gates, and then one day they opened a gate, they let the water from the river in, and the water flowed a direction it had never flowed. It flowed from the Great Lakes into the Chicago River. They reversed the flow of the entire river. It was incredible. So now instead of this putrid, diseased water flowing into the city, the city had an influx of new, fresh water that brought life with it. Some people say that Chicago may not even be around today if they had not reversed the flow of the Chicago River. It was one of the greatest American engineering marvels of all time. And we have to do that with our life as well. We can't just keep trying to push the bad stuff out. We have to let the good stuff in. We have to let the God stuff in. If you are struggling right now with habitual sin in your life, then you make an action plan and you stick to it as if your life depended on it. You can't just try harder to make less mistakes. You have to regularly infuse yourself with the truth of Jesus Christ because it's only his power that can restore your life. You need to let the good stuff in. Hold on to the good. Repentance doesn't just mean turning from evil, it means turning to God. Acts chapter 3 verses 19 and 20 says, repent then. And turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. You can't just do the same old thing over and over or you will end up in the same old place. You guys know the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. If I'm standing up here and my nose is just bleeding profusely and you see me scrubbing my shirt really quick, trying to get rid of all of it, without actually plugging my nose, that would be ridiculous. You have to attack the heart of the matter. If you're just fighting the symptoms of your sin without letting God into your heart, it'll never work. One preacher tells the story of a man who came down the aisle time after time. Seems like every week this guy came down the aisle. And every time he came down, he'd pray, Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. Lord, Take the cobwebs out of my life. Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. Until finally, one day, the preacher had had enough and leaned over and said, Lord, kill the spider. (laughs) (laughs) And we have to make a plan to kill the spider, to turn from the evil and to hold on to the good. Make a plan to infuse your life with biblical truth, with Christian community and accountability and vulnerability if you're struggling with habits and hurts and hang ups that you want to get rid of and you want to let Jesus Christ have, maybe you need to try out our Celebrate Recovery program at the church. It's wonderful. Man, if you want to see the gospel on display, it happens there. And if you do, if you hold on to the good and repent of the evil, here's the promise from Jesus for us, verses 26 through 29. To the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I've received authority from my Father, I will also give that one, the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So to those who hold on and refuse to give the enemy an inch of ground in their lives, you're gonna get the morning star, Jesus says. The sign of a new day about to dawn, and with a new day comes new hope. One of the most beautiful verses in scriptures in Lamentations chapter three says, because of the Lord's great love, We are not consumed. For his compassions, maybe his tolerance, never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the truth is, you may think right now that you're damaged goods. Truth is, you may think that if anybody knew who you really were, what you've really done, then they could never love you. Lies. Lies. Jesus sees and says the truth. And the truth is, you are a mistake, or you're not a mistaker, you're a sinner. But the truth is, you're never too far gone. Truth is, Jesus can restore you and redeem you and heal you if you'll only come to him. We're promised here that we will get the morning star. At the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says that he is the bright morning star. So this promise is that Jesus will give us himself. And truth is, we know that Jesus has already given us himself in his death on the cross on our behalf. Jesus is so intolerant of sin, so intolerant that he had to do something about it. And because of his death, your punishment has been taken, your price has been paid, and he's offering that to you. So will you come and take it? Will you come and let your new day begin with the morning star? Will you let him make you new? He's offering you a new day, a new life. Jesus sees and says the truth. He knows every thought in your head, every action of your past, every fear in your heart, but He also knows the truth of the glorious future that He has in store for you if you will just embrace His grace. So, we're going to come to a time of communion now in our service. We're going to take the cup, we're going to take the bread, and we're going to celebrate together this morning star, this new day that we have been given because Jesus was so incredibly intolerant of sin and yet so tolerant of us sinners that he made a way through his blood to eradicate sin and death entirely and set us free. Hallelujah, let's stand and sing.